back to Haptic and Hughes' third series of Tales of Textiles. I'm Jo Andrews and I'm a hand weaver interested in the different light fabrics cast on humanity. This series is called The Chatter of Cloth and that's because textiles are, if we can listen to them, detective stories that we can hold. They tell us a huge amount about ourselves and the world we live in. They also offer us a window into the lives of ordinary people. People whom history has largely forgotten. But by looking at what they were doing and making, we can find a way to understand more about who they were and how they lived. Join me in this episode to look at one of Europe's great cities. One that for hundreds of years was a byword for exquisitely woven silk fabrics that dressed the royal families of Europe, clothed merchants and muses, priests and politicians, courtesans and courtiers, and produced some of the most coveted fabrics of the day. Lyon is more or less in the centre of France, and this episode is about how textiles shaped this city and how the city and its people in turn shaped and changed the world of cloth. Without Lyon, France would not have become the hub of the world's fashion industry. Paris may be the city of couture, but it could never have acquired that status without Lyon standing behind it as its production and textile design house. In fact, it's fair to say that it's the skills and talents of the craftsmen of Lyon that played a central role in the birth of the whole idea of fashion, where styles change from year to year. We're in a very grand building in the centre of modern Lyon, in the restoration workshop of the Textile Arts Museum. The building is undergoing extensive renovation at present and is closed for a few years. The sounds of construction work are everywhere. But just before the textiles were packed away and transferred to another location during the work, the head of collections, Marion Falaise, let me in a side door to show me something extraordinary. A fabric of great beauty and skill that really makes the relationship between Lyon and Parisian fashion plain. It's a couture scarf about a hundred years old, made for a French fashion house at the height of the Art Deco period. Marianne speaks French here and she is translated by Leslie Fondladosa. Joe, peut-être que vous ne vous attendiez pas à un tissu comme celui-là, noir et doré. Joe, maybe you weren't expecting to see a textile like this. It's from the beginning of the 20th century. We wanted to show you a textile from the 20th century that would show you that our collections here are very rich with more modern fabrics. It's a scarf with very generous dimensions, two colored, black and gold. 
In the middle of the composition, we have two poppies that dominate the composition. One has opened and the other one is still closed. In the lower part, we have a little bush with daisies on the other side to compensate for the composition of the bush. We have a large foliage. These elements of nature that are very stylized are completed by more geometric forms. En bas, un soleil levant. At the bottom, a rising sun. And at the top, a starry night sky. These two elements explain the title that was given to this scarf. Le jour et la nuit. Day and night. This piece is exquisite. Woven in a black silk crepe with a supplementary yarn made of a gold lamella wrapped around a yellow cotton core. It gives the scarf an astonishing drape. It's simultaneously light and heavy. And yes, I was given permission to touch it briefly. Ce carré a été fait pour le marché parisien de la haute couture. This scarf was destined for clients of the high fashion houses in Paris at that time. It is one of the most complex and beautiful woven textiles I have ever seen and draws much of its style from the art movements of the day. It was made in Lyon in the 1920s on a complex jacquard loom. It has 52 threads per centimetre in the warp. That's over 130 ends per inch, individually threaded by hand with black silk yarn highly twisted in different directions to create a flat crepe structure. It was designed for the Maison du Charne, set up by François du Charne, who was trained in Lyon. He took himself off to Paris to create one of the first weaved design houses that employed graphic designers to create new textiles. He worked with some of the top couturiers of the day, Paul Poiret and Madeleine Vionnet. He was also friends with the celebrated French novelist Colette. Colette wrote about her friend uh, François Duchamp quite often. Uh, she even wrote, Colette, that uh, François Duchamp was the, the man who could weave the sun, the moon, and the blue rays of the rain. Duchamp understood that if a design was going to work, it needed to be adapted to its use. And this piece does that absolutely. It's a fabric completely of its time and one of Marion's favourites in the museum's collection. I have a personal preference for scarves. We can see how you can stylize it by simplifying foliage, flowers, and at the same time it's also a perfect example of art deco with the geo geometric designs and the choice of the gold and black colors. So what's interesting here is in this piece, we have a concentration of uh, Lyon's textile know-how. One of the strong points here in Lyon was to have textile designers who understood new weaving techniques and were able to translate, transcribe their designs to a loom. That's one aspect, but there's also the fact that the threads and yarns used in this scarf are also a result of uh, Lyon's know-how. In particular, the frise gold thread 
that was used here. It's uh, definitely a Lyon specialty. And even to this day, uh, Lyon is renowned for this type of gold thread that is still produced here. In fact, no self-respecting member of the British House of Lords was seen without a little bit of gold thread made in Lyon on his, or occasionally her, robes. This scarf represents in many ways the height of Lyon's skills and its design approach. But just like the annoying child forever asking questions, I want to know why this happened in Lyon and who were the people who made it possible. I'm across the river from the Museum of Textiles in the old town of Lyon. This is where the city's story as the world's top producer of luxury silk fabric begins. This part of the city is crowded onto the bank of the Seine River, its tiled roofs and cobbled streets framing the stone houses that face each other across the narrow streets. You can still see the gutters running down the middle of these lanes, which would have carried everything into the river. It helps us to imagine what the smells and sounds must have been like hundreds of years ago. These people were not rich or well-fed. In fact, they lived short lives of considerable squalor. And yet they produced the most luxurious and coveted fabrics in the world. The first answer to the question of why Lyon is look at a map. It's in a great place. It sits at the meeting of two big rivers, the Saône and the Rhône. The Rhône gives it a waterway to the Mediterranean, which meant that raw or spun silk could be imported from Spain, Italy and the Middle East. And yet it's far enough north to make it a place that the rich merchants could reach from Paris, London, Antwerp and Amsterdam. By the 1400s, Lyon was the site of one of the great medieval fairs of the day, with traders coming from all over Europe and Asia Minor to see, to buy, to exchange. But textile production is expensive, especially silk production, and for that you need capital. So hand in hand with the textile trade come the bankers. In this case, they came from Italy, which in this era had Europe's most sophisticated banking industry. That gave Lyon the raw materials, the markets and the capital it needed. All that it lacked then was what the French call savoir-faire, the skill, the talent and the know-how. And that's where this city really came into its own. Here's the museum's head of textile analysis, Suzanne Lassalle, explaining this. Translated again by Leslie von la Dosa. Lyon's success story really starts to take off in the beginning of the 1600s because their technical capacity and skills had been established. They were able to produce a lot and they were also able to produce new designs quickly, which led to the idea of changing designs more often, the idea of, of fashion as it's reflected in fabric design. 
And the fact that the production changes, the designs change, that attracts a new clientele, in fact, who were at the, the court in Versailles and uh, allowed Lyon to take the, the leadership in this domain. So this is where the idea of fashion is born. It's a very long way from the fast fashion of today with new designs every week. But Lyon, with its flexible system of production, its capital and its concentration of dealers, brokers, designers and weavers, could offer styles that changed and developed from year to year, which is really at the root of what fashion means. By the 19th century, earnings from Lyon's silk cloth brought in more money than any other French export. And at its height, it employed around 100,000 people. Not just weavers, but dyers, finishers, those involved in sericulture, traders, bankers, agents, shippers, and all the people needed to make a great industry function. But at the heart of this were the weavers. And the system in Lyon meant that everything happened, not in giant industrial factories, but in a domestic system. Benedict Roy was born in Lyon and is fiercely proud of her city. She works as a city guide, specialising in its textile history. Here in Lyon, never we have seen a big factory of silk. In fact, the people work at home. Okay? I can compare with English system that we call the domestic system. Okay? You work and you live in the same place. Imagine you have seven apartments, you have seven silk workers, you have seven silk workshops. Okay? And in each workshop, you can have different mechanical loom from one to six mechanical loom. Then it means that all the life of the workers, of the silk workers, was around the, the machine the, because the mechanical loom was in the center of their life to work, but um, physically in the apartment. Look inside one of these apartments. There's one that is maintained as it was by a living history foundation the soirée vivante, and the looms dominate the single room. There's a small boarded-off or cuttened area for cooking and a sleeping platform above it for the whole family. It was cramped and incredibly noisy. Here's Blondine Rousey, who works for the foundation. So in the 19th century, uh, the traditional family is made of five persons, the two parents, two children, and one apprentice. And everyone was sleeping in the same area. It's a sort of mezzanine. It's very useful because we, we win a room. As the ceilings are very high, we can make a mezzanine with the kitchen and the soupante, it's the bedroom. And everyone was sleeping, eating in this little corner. And it was also quite useful because you are directly on the place of work. So you just need to wake up in the morning and go to work. But that means also that everyday life is, is made with the work of the looms and especially the sounds of the looms. And uh, we said earlier that the children were sleeping in the soupante, in the bedroom, with the sounds of the loom. 
and they were able to sleep only with the sounds of the loom, like a lullaby. So really, the looms are part of the family also and the everyday life. This was a tough life. Each weaver was responsible for developing his own skill and craft. He was paid on a piecework system. It didn't matter how long it took to finish a piece, the payment was the same. These weren't industrial workers in factories. They were individual or family artisans working for the cloth dealers. They had to be literate and numerate. Here's Benedict, the city guide again. It's the proof that it wasn't just a group of workers who spent this time to, to work, but it, it was people who know, write, count, um, read. And then it's the proof that it was the excellence of the workers. And you remember we talk about the, the silk as a complex uh, weaving. You, you need to, to know to count, for example, because to prepare your uh, mechanical loom, uh, you must uh, install um, several uh, thousand of uh, yarn of silk. Huh? I mean, it's, it's very complex and it's the proof that it was very clever people, in fact, and not just someone who work all along the day and who never um, think to, uh, to other things. Lyon was one of the first places in Europe where labour began to organise and where the workers set up their own sick pay and welfare systems for themselves and their families. Lyon is one of the places Karl Marx had in mind when he wrote Das Kapital. There were workers' revolts and riots in Lyon to protest at conditions and exploitation by the silk traders. Here's Blondine Hausi, who works for the Living History Foundation. You never knew how much you were paid. So they wanted to create a minimum salary in order to have something to live on. There's this sense of community, because all the weavers were weavers. So they knew how it was difficult to live, and they wanted to have just one voice uh, instead of so many little voices that they have no uh, weight. And just one voice put together, all the uh, weavers put together, with one voice is um, more powerful than many voices. It was a battle over workers' rights that was to go on for hundreds of years. But this enterprise and intelligence, this focus on textiles, also led to the invention of something extraordinary. In 1801, Joseph-Marie Jacquard, born in Lyon, demonstrated the first Jacquard loom in the city. This would not only change the face of Lyon utterly, but would also go on to change the world, and is still doing so right up until the present day. Before the 19th century, complex weavers had draw looms, which had laborious systems for individually raising sets of shafts by hand to create the pattern pick by pick. That meant that every weaver had to employ draw boys to work with him to select the right shafts. Joseph-Marie Jacquard invented a punch card system instead and installed a Jacquard head with the new punch cards on top of existing looms. It was a brilliant solution, and it's estimated that it sped up the production of complex silk fabrics by a factor of three. 
Blondine says the jacquard mechanism was a kind of brain for weavers. It's to replace the human brain because before the jacquard mechanism, all the threads were lifted by hand. So the people who did this type of job had to remember all the sequences of lifting of the threads. And the jacquard mechanism uh, was able to replace the human brain. So it's kind of a mechanical brain. It's working thanks to the punch cards, which are the beginning of the computer. It's a binary code. Uh, in the computer, it's one and zero. Here, it's uh, if there is a hole, that means, yes, the thread is lifted. If there's only the card, that means, uh, no, the thread remains where it is. So thanks to this binary system, we can do all the patterns we want. There's no limit to imagination. It advanced textile production across the world, and it continues to bring about change in other ways as well. As Blondine says, Monsieur Jacquard's punch cards were based on a simple binary system. In this case, up or down for the weaving shafts. This was adapted by Charles Babbage in Britain later in the 19th century to create the first computer, which leads us step by step from weaving innovations to the digital age in which we now live. But at the start, this innovation was hated in Lyon as it put the draw boys out of work. Here's Blondine. The Jacquard mechanism was not very, very popular, but uh, we saw that it was very useful for production. And also, it was quite expensive to put the Jacquard mechanism on a traditional loom. That's why at the beginning, not so much people had, uh, could put uh, the, the Jacquard mechanism on their looms. Monsieur Jacquard also changed the face of Lyon as a city too. His jacquard box, which fitted on top of the old looms, meant that the ceilings of the apartments in which the weavers lived and worked in the old town were too low and the district too cramped. So the weaving community moved, bit by bit, to a new suburb of Lyon, high above the river, called La Croix Russe, the Russet Cross where new apartment blocks were built to house the weavers, their looms and their new jacquard attachments. I'm standing in front of one of the workers' buildings constructed in the early 19th century in La Croix-Rousse. Like so many others in this district, it's utterly plain. There's no ornament or decoration. There are only windows, as many as you can structurally fit into a facade. On the ground floor were the silk merchant shops with their small storage mezzanines above them. And then for six or seven floors above that are the weavers' apartments, places where they and their families would have lived and worked. Each apartment would have housed two to three looms. These buildings were made with huge slabs of stone to hold the weight of so many looms. And to absorb some of the vibration, they filled the spaces between the floors with gravel and sand. Even so, the noise coming from just one of these buildings would have been immense. Imagine what street after street would have sounded like. 
the sound of a jacquard loom weaving, just one. It makes a special noise which the Lyonnais call bistin claque, a word that has transferred itself to describe the looms. At the height of silk production in the mid-19th century, there were an estimated 30,000 looms working in this city, making a noise that could be heard a good distance away. The weavers also created a network of paths through the city. These were essentially private passageways which allowed them to move about the city quickly, trundling silk or finished goods. These traboules, as they are called, are still there today. Open a door that looks like the front door of a house and suddenly you can find yourself in a warren of hidden paths that take you through the city, under houses and apartment blocks, and lead you out of another door back into a different street. Lyon's fabric production reached its peak in the second half of the 19th century and after that began to decline as other centres rose up to take its place and the demand for highly complex silk fabrics declined as we moved into a different age of more democratic fashion. The only looms that work today in Lyon are looked after by Blondine Rousey and her colleagues in an apartment that was given to them by one of the last weavers in the city. Madame Le Tourneau was a passementerie or trimmings weaver and left them a magnificent loom which can weave 18 different ribbon warps at the same time. Otherwise, the looms are quiet and the city seems to have moved on. Lyon today is a prosperous and successful modern city. The Lyonnais quite rightly have a huge pride in it. But there isn't a single weaving atelier left. They've all gone, and there's almost nothing of that weaving skill and savoir-faire that once made Lyon a byword for beautiful silk fabric. And yet, dig a little deeper, and you'll find that even today the city is built on the foundations of textile wealth. The thriving banking sector, including the big French bank Le Crédit Lyonnais, grew up to finance silk weaving. The modern chemical industry started as the dyeing works. The 20th century car production that was here grew out of the engineering skills needed to make and repair looms. And even the food, for which Lyon is justly famous, developed out of the need to take really cheap ingredients, the kind of things you could afford on a silk weaver's pay, and turn them into something delicious. Lyon is certainly the only city in the world where you can be offered a cheese in the restaurants and the bistros, which is called Weaver's Brain. I tried it, and it's good, although I have no idea how it came to be called that. But there is a serious point here. Benedict Roy, the city guide, says that the link with silk is still important for Lyon. You, you can take all the, all the activities, all the economical activities, each time you find a link with the silk. It, it means, for me, that if there is no silk in Lyon, there is no industries, there is no economical development. We weave less silk now, but in the heritage of the city, it's important. Benedict also points out 
that Lyon does still have a connection with fabric, just not silk. It makes modern textiles such as Kevlar the fireproof fabric and also seating for planes and trains. And of course it still has the capacity to undertake meticulous repair work for the great French palaces like Versailles. But today in the heart of La Croix-Rousse, the streets are silent and the old weavers' apartments are now smart flats for families and young professionals. The only clue to their past is the odd drift of sand or fragments of gravel dropping occasionally from the old ceilings. A ghostly reminder of what once was and how the modern city's prosperity and success has been built on the sound of thousands of looms creating magical fabrics. Thanks to Marion Falaise and Suzanne Lassalle at Lyon's Textile Arts Museum. To Leslie von Dosa for valiantly translating. To Benedict Roy for her passion for her home city of Lyon. To Blondine Rausi at the Soirerie Vivante. And most of all, to Stephanie Angevin at the offices of Go Lyon, who played a big role in making this podcast possible. If you would like to find out more about them or about silk weaving in Lyon, you can find resources and links at www.hapticandhue.com forward slash tales of textiles series three. Thanks too to Bill Taylor of the Lark Rice Partnership who produced and helped to edit this episode. And lastly, to all those listeners who made this third series possible because they supported it via the Buy Me a Coffee button on our website. Next time, we'll be exploring a story of scandal and subterfuge. I'll leave you with four clues. Here they come. The American Civil War, rhubarb, smuggling, recycling. Join me next time to hear more. And thanks for listening.